You're listening to TIP. I think it pays off. You know, obviously, compared to the indexer, the trap is you underperform. You make bad decisions and just can't get it right and you underperform. The real upside is being able to discern high quality businesses run by high quality people and and making investments in them at at least a fair price and then holding it for a really long time. And you can perform exceedingly well. And there are lots of examples of individual human beings who've done that. Famous examples. We list a whole bunch of uh, in quality shareholders. We've got a whole whole appendix of some of the famous people. And then funds that, that they've gone on to, on to create. So I think there's a lot of upside for the investor. And the related upside is, especially as maybe not for individual stock pickers with a relatively small nest egg, but for larger individuals who come to have significant positions in, in companies, they have a voice, they have an influence, and they can help companies. In this episode... I chat with Lawrence Cunningham about Warren Buffett's focus on value, Warren's unique long-term perspective, how the most successful managers utilize self-reflection to help reduce mistakes, why capital efficiency metrics are so important to the success of a business and its incentive program, a great biological mental model called security from obscurity to help identify under-the-radar businesses, why quality shareholders are so important for public corporations, and a whole lot more. The Essays of Warren Buffett was one of the earlier books I read on investing. I've taken so many lessons from it and regularly referenced the book to draw wisdom from it. Lawrence Cunningham did a wonderful job of organizing it and making it easily accessible to investors of all experience levels. But what I didn't know was how wide Lawrence's breadth of knowledge was on all things Buffett, quality, and governance. So when I decided to read more of his books, I was very impressed with the many different aspects of quality that he discussed in detail. Lawrence is one of the most passionate writers on quality that I've come across. I was ecstatic to interview him about many of the questions I had in relation to his books. Lawrence is on the board of three very high-quality businesses, Constellation Software, Kelly Partners Group, and Markel Group. He understands why these businesses and many others are exceptional, not just from a business standpoint, but because of the culture and relationships they have built with their partners, subsidiaries, and shareholders. If you're an admirer of quality businesses, you'll take many great insights from this episode. Now, without further delay... Let's get right into this week's episode with Lawrence Cunningham. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring on Lawrence Cunningham onto the show. Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. Great to be with you. You wrote one of my favorite investing books of all time, The Essays of Warren Buffett. To any investor or corporate manager out there listening to this or who haven't read it, you need to get yourself a copy ASAP. Now, one of the most interesting insights from that book that differentiates Warren Buffett from 99.9% of other managers is his emphasis on intrinsic value over stock price. Buffett's strategy is to keep the share price of Berkshire Hathaway aligned with the intrinsic value of the business rather than seeing massive mispricings. Why do you think it's so rare for executives to place such a low emphasis on stock price in today's markets? Market prices have a powerful effect on everybody and uh, CEOs in particular, because many consider that to be the scorecard of managerial performance. 
And many managers are compensated in stock options whose value is strongly influenced by stock price. And so it's easy for CEOs to become myopic and just focus on that result, that which is a temporary fleeting thing, instead of the underlying business value. Yeah, makes sense. So Warren has made it abundantly clear that he doesn't put much value on short-term price fluctuations at Berkshire Hathaway's publicly held companies. Warren said, and I quote, as owner of, say, Coca-Cola or American Express shares, we think of Berkshire as being a non-managing partner in two extraordinary businesses in which we measure our success by the long-term progress of the companies rather than by the month-to-month movement of their stock prices. So there's no real reason that retail and professional investors can't take the exact same stance that he does in reference to their portfolios, but obviously very few do. Why do you think Buffett is able to think on a different level than most investors? Being long-term is not easy. He has been around a long time. I think he's been relatively patient from the beginning, but even he had had a learning curve. He had to grow into recognizing the difference between short-term stock prices and long-term value. And he did develop that habit and it's helped him a great deal. The rest of us, it takes time to build that kind of confidence and patience. After all, People might buy a stock and think, boy, this is terrific. It's got a long-term runway. I'm going to hold it through thick and thin. And by golly, when that stock price crashes or it has problems, you start to think, oh, gee, maybe I was wrong. And, and people get nervous. I mean, they do it with IBM, did it with Amazon, doing it today. Who knows which stock, AMC for that matter. So it's just hard to tune out the day-to-day market activity, tune out the daily headlines. And I mean, he consumes that information, but he, he manages to discipline himself to recognize that's just a momentary picture. And you've got to zoom back and remind yourself that you're in it for the long term. I mean, another notion, Kyle, that your quote from that section of the essay is about how he sees himself or Berkshire as a non-managing partner of Coca-Cola or American Express, that image can help people, can help your listeners. If you think rather than that, I just bought 100 shares of Facebook or Meta on my Charles Schwab account, and I could sell them anytime I wanted to. You think I have just joined a business that will be around for 10, 20, 30 years, and I can't sell it, and I don't want to sell it. And I know there'll be trouble, but I'm not going to respond to that. So that's another passage elsewhere in in the book talks about, he makes an investment assuming that he can't sell it. That helps. Uh, He's got a line about, if I'm not interested in a stock when the stock exchange is closed, I'm not interested in a stock when the stock exchange is open. So, you know, your listeners have to develop their own kind of mental tricks or mental discipline to provoke that long-term focus, but that's what he has done. Excellent. So Buffett has made many great points about mergers and acquisitions that you cover in uh, essays, Warren Buffett. One of the main themes that he discussed is how mergers are often great for the acquiree, but very poor for the shareholders of the acquirer. Do you think Warren Buffett's competitive advantage for acquisitions lies in the fact that he doesn't use outside help with these investments via, you know, investment banks and stuff like that? Almost certainly. You know, there are two parts to that query, if I may. That first part about buyers tending to overpay, it's, it is true. And now that part of that might be built in competitive market economics, I- independent of advisor. If Cisco wants to buy this wonderful cyber firm, well, it, it might have to pay $26 billion because someone else would pay 24 or 25 So there's a natural 
competitive environment that may lead to high prices. There's also a little bit of natural salivating that managers imagine a wonderful result occurring from some growth in the business, some platform, some acquisition. So there, there are those natural psychological social reasons why bidders do tend to overpay. But the helpers, thanks for mentioning helpers. Warren has a whole uh, section, there's a whole section in the essays of Warren Buffett called The Helpers. And he points out that corporate America has fostered a cottage industry in advisors, consultants, bankers, accountants, lawyers who help companies do all kinds of things. And well, they're expensive. They cost money. They then try to add value, and sometimes that adds up to overpaying. And so that ecosystem, you know, Warren's quite critical of it. I, I'm in it, so I'm, I'm a little less critical. <laughs> you know, there are people and there are services that do add value, but the overall effect is to, I think, increase prices and maybe get people uh, increasing value. If I may, he's got another joke, you know, because the, on the investment bankers in particular, the advisors to buyers in merger and acquisition transactions will often charge on a contingency basis, on, on a success basis. So they get a piece if the deal goes through and it's usually a percentage. And so their interest is to get the price high also. And indeed, the higher the price, the more likely it is that bidder will win. So the bankers have a structural incentive to bid them up. And you know, when that happens, you obviously risk overpaying. And Warren's got a joke on that. He said, well, you know, he typically does not use advisors or you know bankers for these transactions, but he had a joke that said, well, if I'm going to pay a banker a percentage of the deal if it goes through, I think I should pay another banker a percentage of the of what it would have been if it didn't go through. And then he'll get kind of the best advice either way. I like that. So another awesome part from your book was when Warren talked about intrinsic value. And I quote, the percentage change in book value in any given year is likely to be reasonably close to that year's change in intrinsic value. Many of our listeners are invested in businesses that are high in intangible assets. Do you think Buffett would stand by this as a useful measure for changes in intrinsic value of asset light businesses? You know, I think you probably would. I think the main reason is that you're right that the elements of assets have changed from, you know, say, you know, steel to silicon and even more abstract. And so book value as such is measuring something different and may have different reliability, measuring the value of a warehouse or a plant might be quite different than measuring the value of a trademark or a copyright or a patent or, or even some other intangible like reputation. That said, I think there's probably fewer ways to impose yourself on book value psychologically, systematically. And so, you know, it's easier to get carried away with estimated cash flows and discount rates with earnings and, and multiples and comparables. It's, uh, book value is still a pretty disciplined accounting metric, conservative, that, that may underestimate, it may leave things out. But you're right, the elements have changed, what it measures is different. But in terms of its conservatism, my guess is he probably still offer a defense of book value. For sure, I think his annual letters typically lead off with a statement about book value. For sure, plus all the securities. So the overall mix, I'm sure, compared to 30 or 50 years ago, is way more intangible than tangible assets. But there's still an enormous amount of value residing in the measurable tangibles. And you know, and, and sometimes there'll be goodwill within the book value. So they're capturing across that huge enterprise. I, I think book value still might be overall the most out of meaningful or disciplined expression. 
Excellent. So there's a great quote from Quality Investing. Quote, if smart people learn from their own mistakes, while wise people learn from the mistakes of others, the goal is to be both smart and wise. What strategies have you seen in the corporate world by the best managers out there that help ensure that they are acting both smart and wise? I enjoyed writing that book and it did make me think a lot about how we learn and how we develop intelligence and wisdom. And I do think both self-reflection, self-criticism, and observation of other people's decision-making processes and errors is important And doing both. And Buffett, you know, is an exemplar. He may even be a little extreme. He remembers his mistakes, he writes about them, and then he kind of, he often picks at them over and over again. You know, you'll see throughout the essays, he constantly revisits his acquisition of Jen Ray, which is long ago in the rearview mirror, and just kicks himself over and over again. I try not to do that. I don't think it's strictly necessary, uh, but for most ordinary people, probably recognizing the imperfection in your process, what you learn from it, and then moving on. And so I think doing that on a regular basis about um, and, and certainly investment decisions, hiring decisions, or could be other relational decisions that you make. And then also, I think picking up on patterns that you can observe from others. We've already hit on a couple of them, overpaying for acquisitions, selling stocks because they've struggled in short periods. You know, these are you know two big categories of mistakes. How do you avoid that? And I think if you look at you know what corporate America does in valuing targets or what so many retail investors and, and probably some larger one institutionals do selling when prices are falling and buying as they're peaking out. What's happening there? You know, and you study that and there are some social psychological forces, again, in, sort of in both cases that we've touched on. Internalize that and try to avoid allowing yourself to make those kinds of mistakes. I mean, the quality investing book is really all about an approach to evaluating companies that's a little different. And we have a whole chapter in there about how this different perspective can lead to its own set of mistakes. But sort of the basic premise is to recognize a common mistake and try to correct for it common mistake is a an insistence or a habituated commitment to overcommitted overzealousness about value investing. Warren got over this a long time ago too. There's a lot of people who think I only want to buy a stock when it's a 50% discount to price to value or only buy a business when you get some big discount. And, and there, are, there are all kinds of problems with that approach. Uh, one is that you might buy a really terrible business or terrible stock and you may get what you pay for. Uh, the other is even if you did satisfy yourself that it's an intelligent purchase, it, it may not deliver or may take an extraordinarily long time to deliver and really may test your patience. And the point of quality investing was to recognize that if you can identify a business with long-term and durable mouthwatering economics, even if it seems to be proudly priced today, still might be a good investment. Anyways, that area is probably the more fruitful place to work in, we argue in the book. And so thanks for that question, Kyle. It's, I think that whole book in a way is, was trying to learn from the mistakes of others and try to do something a little bit different for your own account. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Yeah, that book was excellent. I have, I have more questions for you on that. Just uh, I wanted to touch on one thing you said that I really liked. You said that obviously that an amount of self-reflection is obviously really, really good. Now, as a retail investor, how can we tell if a manager of a company that we want to invest in is using self-reflection in order to make decision-making? I mean, obviously, you know, we don't know them on a personal basis. Is there anything that we can look at you know, outside of their shareholder letters to kind of try and get that information? Or how would you go about that? Yeah, I do think character counts and the personality of a company's leadership can have a significant influence on its value, its performance, and you know its time horizon. So I think having some appreciation of who, maybe even if you can get at it, the CFO, the super top leadership, maybe even the board. And obviously in our system, we have abundant disclosure by and about those people in the proxy statement and the annual reports. And you mentioned annual shareholder letters. We have annual meetings. Many companies host investor days or quarterly calls that are usually people can dial into. And if you have the time and patience, you can really get a sense, the cut of a person's jib, you know, their style, their manner. You can assess, you know, every person is different. People have different appetites for what signals to them a high degree of candor or a high degree of competence. And, you know, whether, you know, in today's world, there's always an association with some aspect of the intangibles a person brings in terms of what they value highly, what their priorities are. And so you can certainly spend, take some time, but spend time listening to those audios or presentations and reading the letters and the annuals. And there's, a, I think, quite different range of styles. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do that for hundreds of companies, but if, if you're able to narrow down your own circle of competence and what you think you understand well at zero in and zero in, it may not be unbearable. It may be bad. Sometimes it's even fun to spend some time trying to size somebody up that way. 
So in quality investing, you also mentioned that you prefer businesses to prioritize return on capital over per share earnings growth as businesses that emphasize this are more likely to be a little bit more long-term oriented. Are there businesses that have converted to this line of thinking from say like a total shareholder return or other subpar incentive structures? Yes. And that's another thing you can get from the readings and audios that I just mentioned, because you'll hear what priorities a CEO adopts or a CFO adopts or, or a company adopts, what they're measuring and what they emphasize in their measuring. And if they're measuring growth in earnings per share, well, that signals the opposite of what I appreciate. Some people may appreciate that. That'd be an accounting-based kind of growth orientation over, over shorter periods of time. The return on invested capital is instead really ultimately what is a shareholder getting for each dollar. And that's, to me, what the shareholder ultimately must care about. And that you may generate a higher return on invested capital with a company that's not growing, it's that's earnings. It, it may be better to shrink a business or, or allow it to get smaller and the returns might get higher depending on the economic environment, product, the mix, pricing, depending on every business factor. And so I think prioritizing earnings per share growth, and that may be good. Actually, for going back to your second question, managers who are compensated on the basis of earnings per share growth are going to grow per earnings per share and not care so much about return on investment capital. But for a shareholder, her net worth will be a function of the return on the capital, not necessarily on the, the growth in anything. Another great insight from quality investing was the importance of incremental innovation. So this had two benefits that you outlined. One, the customers are happier that they aren't seeing large shifts in price. And two, the business is happy because it can charge slightly more for an improved product without angering its customers. What type of businesses can you name that you think do a really good job of incremental innovation? Well, I think that keeping that philosophy in mind is attractive because it's a very customer first business model. And I think the best companies are those who appreciate that their fundamental purpose is serving customers. I mean, yes, the idea is to deliver a return to your investors, but the reason to be in business is because you sell so people want, or you provide an accounting service that people value, or you help an industry discover new ways of doing things. And so I think in all of those settings, cater to customers is crucial. And that incremental innovation is a part of that. I mean, it may vary industry to industry, but generally people who are buying goods and services prize stability and continuity and they appreciate innovation, novelty, new ways of doing things. They're quite attracted to that, but not so much disruptive technology, disorienting technology. And from the seller's point of view, again, keeping customers and keeping them happy is very important to business. So abrupt and bold innovation can alienate customers, entice them to decide, well, we're facing this major shift. Why don't we put out a request for proposals and see what other businesses can offer this service to us? And so I think a great many companies do appreciate this customer focus and follow some sense of incremental innovation. And Procter & Gamble would strike me as one, 3M, Illinois Toolworks. These are companies that are always innovating in some way. They've got budgets to do research and experimentation and product improvements. And they'll, they'll once in a while announce some big, bold breakthrough product that might be more than incremental innovation, but on throughout their product lines, they're, they're always trying to make it a little bit better. And I think that that adds a sense of stability to that and quality to that kind of company. Excellent. You used a great mental model about nature and business and quality investing in that both an animal and a business have an advantage if they can stay out of sight, out of potential predators. You called it, quote, security from obscurity. 
What are good ways of learning how obscure a business's products are? Yeah, I I think it's a really nice analogy. Thanks for sharing it. I think it can help us. And that's a surprising analogy too, because I think many retail, many individuals, uh, investors, and some prominent stock pickers, Peter Lynch comes to mind, had this thought that, well, buy what you know, you know, focus on prominent, the famous. And so back in Peter's day, he was one of the first to spot Dunkin' Donuts, now called Dunkin'. It was a splash and it became popular pretty quickly. And and he used that as an example of ordinary people's I know today it might be Starbucks. And that's fine. Those are great. Disney is a perennial favorite of people. So I know Mickey Mouse. I know the theme parks. Nowadays, Mattel, owner of Barbie, might be that kind of thing. These are not little furrowing animals down in the forest. These are big, well-known. And we have no problem answering your question there. You just read the paper or... You know, get on your phone. These obscure things are usually going to be not consumer branded products, but organizations that help other businesses prosper. So it might be the ingredient maker or the the data management firm, the back office help that are essential to those consumer facing or those branded businesses. And so trying to develop a sense of sector that sort of the ingredients companies and trying to think, what you know, who among them are the incremental innovators? You know, how do you do that? You have to read a lot. And one way to do it is you're reading the annual reports of even those four famous companies, Dunkin', Starbucks, Disney, and the others. You'll begin to learn they rely on certain suppliers, certain vendors to deliver their doll or their movie or their uh, products, consumer products. And if you can back up that their supply chain, say, well, what kind of, what role do these little animals furrowing in the forest play? You know, you find that there are some indispensable components of that supply chain that contribute enormous parts of the value to those front big marquee name companies. And I think we give a couple of examples of companies like that in quality investing. And so, you know, it's, it is hunting, you know, it's, there's this little animal there. And a lot of those companies appreciate that security in, in obscurity. They're very happy to do very, very well for themselves. They don't want to make a fuss. They don't want to be on the front page of the newspaper or on your app. They like making this particular input, whether it's you know the ingredients in yogurt or the little metal devices on the end of your uh, UBS ports. Amphenol is that company. And so read a lot and think, you know, what what is essential to this visible product that stays quiet and stays obscure? Excellent advice. So I want to move on a little bit more about Berkshire. So Berkshire has only paid a dividend once in its history in 1967. In the book, you mentioned that in 2014, and its book, sorry, I'm mentioning now is uh, Margin of Trust. You mentioned that shareholders overwhelmingly voted against another dividend when they had a vote. So are these the only two times in Berkshire's history that they voted on dividend payments or have there been other instances as well? I think that you know, Warren makes a joke about that 1967 dividend that he says uh, when the board approved that dividend that day, he must have been in the bathroom because he wouldn't have approved it. I think he put two resolutions to shareholders over the years. So one was 2014. I think it might have been about 10, 15 years before that. But both times he was responding to inquiries from shareholders, Berkshire shareholders who had an appetite for liquidity. They, they'd like a dollar a quarter, $10 a quarter, and they wondered would you be willing to do it? And Warren has long explained that this is the basic capital allocation model is to try to put every corporate dollar to its best use. And in that model, a corporation might reinvest in its existing businesses with that dollar. It might make additional acquisitions of bolt-on or tuck-in businesses or even add new businesses or invest that 
dollar in common common stocks of, of other businesses, uh, or it might buy back its own stock if that's trading at a low price to value. And if they run out of uses in those areas that that deliver a better return than the stockholders could get themselves, then pay the dividend. So that's a sort of a basic capital allocation model that Berkshire follows and. His view has always been that we do better holding each dollar than our shareholders could do. We do better reinvesting the business, making acquisitions, and buying back our stock when the price is low compared to value. So our stockholders are better off leaving the dollar with us than if we paid it to them. And his second point on that was that the choice between a company buying shares back and paying a dividend, it's better to buy them back if they can be bought at a low price because you're then returning cash to shareholders who would like the liquidity. They can sell some of their shares and they will. the taxpaying recipients will have to pay tax on that. Whereas you pay a dividend, every shareholder has to take it and every taxable shareholder has to pay the tax, even if they'd rather not have the liquidity and would rather not have that tax exposure. So that's how he's thought about it, how he's explained it to his investors. And those two times when the shareholders got a chance to vote, as you say, overwhelmingly, the holders agreed with that policy and they prefer Berkshire to keep it. And so now, obviously, Berkshire's cash pile is it's absolutely massive. I think it's like 150 billion ish, maybe a little bit less. Now, I, I don't talk to a lot of Berkshire shareholders, and I know a lot of them probably still trust Warren very much, and they probably should. But you know, is he going to be able to reinvest all that money at these high rates? And do you think he's ever going to pay a dividend, or do you think it's just you know he purely is going to take the option of doing buybacks over dividends into the future, even if the cash keeps piling up? That's an enormous amount of cash, uh, no matter how you look at it on its own. I mean, just in, in raw terms, it's a staggering sum. And, and even within an organization Berkshire's size, maybe $800 billion in market capitalization, I'm not sure the latest figures, but even for a pretty big company like Berkshire, that's a huge portion uh, of assets and, and of overall net worth. So it's a burning question. You know, the formula still does apply. What would the holders do with the money, probably buy an S&P 500 and that they'd, they'd be receiving that money after tax. And so that that return does struggle with even basic return that Berkshire's wonderful businesses and its investees will return. So I think the, the equation still, the test is met. They're not failing that test. So, you know, and, and what's he doing? Well, the what they're doing is waiting for that big opportunity. Well, I guess they're waiting for two things. You know, one is, I should say, one reason Berkshire has had a policy of, of holding abundant cash. Now, by abundant, I think the last figure he, he used for this purpose was $30 billion. It may be 40 or 50 now, but it's abundant cash in order to pay insurance claims if, if the businesses were hit. Berkshire writes a lot of uh, super catastrophic insurance risk for a lot of catastrophic risks, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods. Terrorism. And so if we got a huge, I mean, Berkshire always said, we want to be the Fort Knox in the insurance industry. And it brags that it claims that it has the strongest balance sheet of all the major property and casualty insurers that, that if the world was really overwhelmed, multiple disasters and human and natural, many insurance companies might go broke. Berkshire, he says, won't and we'll pay every claim that comes to us. So to, to be able to make that commitment at the scale of insurance that they write, you'd need 20, 30, I don't know what the number is today, but it, for 40, 50 billion. So at, at least some, a quarter or a third of the cash that's sitting there is has to be there, you know, e even if 
some, you know, hundred billion dollar acquisition opportunity came that they'd kind of run out of money. So, and, and that's what they're waiting for. Some amazing opportunity like that. Obviously, there aren't many companies in the world that would fit that, but there are a few. And um, you, you never know when they might come available. It's good to have that opportunity, that capital there. But I, I do think it's a problem. It's a high class problem, but it's still a problem. And I think one of the Great challenges once Warren leaves the scene will be for the um, successor board to make that determination. I, if I was on it or advising them, I'd, I'd stick to the knitting, I'd stick to the Buffett philosophy, but you can bet that there will be greater agitation among some shareholders to break that pattern. So that's, I think, one of the, will be one of the most interesting things about Berkshire in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. Excellent. So trust is an admirable trait that Warren has fostered at Berkshire Hathaway and through its subsidiaries. That trust has been responsible for much of Berkshire's acquisition history. Many potential acquiries end up on Buffett's desk because they're referred to by people inside and outside of Berkshire. But in Berkshire's early days, did he resort to using brokers to source acquisitions or did he always have this uh, network of people that he could call on to get them? Yes, it's a great point that, you know, trust is the real secret sauce, I think, of Berkshire's business methods and of Warren's own personality, both in vindicating trust. That is, when he says something, you can count on uh, him doing it and in discerning trustworthiness in others. He's a pretty good gauge of who's trustworthy and who isn't. And he hears on the side of skepticism. Any whiff of doubt about a person, he says, well, I, I can't go into business with you. And these traits have been there since the beginning. He has preferred handshake. He has preferred to buy from a friend or a friend of a friend than through a, an investment banker or other paid advisor. He knows plenty of bankers and advisors and likes them as human beings. And he's not making a category criticism as, as such, but appreciates that when people are paid to deliver a particular result, they will try to deliver that particular result. And so a lot of his, you know, the earliest acquisitions were done through a network of friends. The two most famous were the original, the acquisition of National Indemnity back in 1967, uh, which he bought from a friend of a friend, Jack Ringwald, uh, made by then Warren was a direct friend, but, and they did it on a, basically a handshake and a one and a half page agreement. And then the other big famous one from that era was Nebraska. And by the way, National Indemnity is one of the largest insurance companies in the world today. And the other notable acquisition of that era of that type was Nebraska Furniture Mart, which he purchased from a, a, a local Omaha native that was in his circle, Mrs. Blumkin, Rose Blumkin. And again, on a not quite a napkin, but pretty close. And that is how he's preferred it. Now, as the acquisition, as, the, as Berkshire's got bigger and is a publicly listed company, the companies that's buying or big public companies, there was always more space and sometimes need for having those advisors. And so some transactions did end up getting there through that more professional route. But always the favorites and the one he the ones he likes to talk most about came through friends and family. And it was just easier to, uh, it is easier to count on when you hear, oh, this is the book value, or this is the growth rate, or these are the markets we think we can do better in. You know, you can trust it more than a section 6.75 of the agreement makes a representation that the gap financials have been audited. Yeah, it's just, it's, it is different. And and he's managed to, you asked early on, what's different? Why, how, why, how's Warren different? You know, he has cultivated a phenomenal network of business people. So he must get 
I, I don't know what the figure would be, dozens of acquisition opportunities a week. And so that is it, a little harder for the, you know, the rest of us to, to receive that volume, but he'll see everything within his potential wheelhouse and, you know, it's easier for him to run his business that way. So advisors are sometimes critical. But within my footnote, as I think if you're a professional and engaged in, in building a business or trying to grow a business in that dimension, having advisors is important. But what's critical is having advisors you can trust. Our book, Margin of Trust, is partly about how you can prove that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, so I've got some more questions on the book. So you mentioned in Margin of Trust that as a business grows in size, centralization begins creeping in. You mentioned Mark Leonard, which is dear to my heart because I'm a big fan of his work. So anyways, you mentioned that he was doing a search for high-performing companies at one point. And he said, and I quote, they eventually caved in to increase centralization. My hunch is that it takes an unusually trusting culture and a long investing horizon to support a multitude of small businesses and their entrepreneurial leaders. If trust falters, the business units can be choked by bureaucracy. If short-term results are paramount, 
the siren song of consolidation synergies is powerful. Now, for a business running decentralized systems as part of their model, how can they best maintain trust with their subsidiaries to avoid the creep of centralization? That's uh, beautifully put and poignant because you're absolutely right. As an entrepreneur, you or I or the group of us, we start to develop this product or market this service and we're excited about it and we want everybody to do as well as they can and reach their potential. So we give them lots of responsibility. This person's in charge of this business. This person's in charge of these accounts and we just have everyone doing their best. And, you know, it's a sort of a partnership and we all trust each other and we don't have reports. We don't have over two people signing off and we sort of just let it roll. And then as you get bigger and bigger, you know, your interest in trying to impose a little control increases too. And so you have some oversight, supervision, reporting hire and things like that. So it is a natural thing to want to do. And you have to have a balance. You you certainly can have an organization of a thousand people and each person could just do whatever they want and let us know how it goes. You have to have some culture, some glue, some shared sense of what an what achievement would be, what the goal is. And so you do need to have a balance between autonomy and oversight or control. And I think, you know, though a way to do that will vary with the personalities and the business. But what you mentioned Constellation, and I, I think it's a neat example of a reference point, certainly, for, that would be generally useful to people, which is that the business is decentralized. So it's it's divided into there are 1,000 different businesses inside that company, each one with its own P&L, each one managed by its own team and with enormous autonomy in their sphere of marketing, pricing, product innovation, staffing, even compensation, incentives, work hours, environment. And they're in a hundred different countries. So that is also very important because locales differ in, in language and religion and geography and just about every way. So it's it's an extremely decentralized model for really good reasons. And it's very much a system of trust. And then the flip side, the, the way that the balance is that there are also a set of business expectations that performance metrics that each of these thousand units say should be able to meet. And so, you know, what's nice about this business is that All of those thousand are in the market. They sell software. And so the economics of software tend to be similar, even in different markets and different geographies and so on. So it's possible, even in a diffuse and sprawling organization like that, to say this is for a software business, revenue per employee, let's say, should be within this range. Expenses for product development should be within compared to revenue should be within this range. You know, numbers of levels of of customer attrition should not be worse than this. And you can go down a whole list. And so the balance is achieved by broadcasting these common expectations and then saying you can meet them however you want. This is this will count in good software business. And so it's wonderful. And as I said, each company does a little differently and depend on on the character, personalities and, and the types of business. At Berkshire Hathaway, those 82 odd businesses are virtually all in different areas. I mean, there, there are five jewelers and five furniture stores, but they're making consumer products, industrial goods, selling services of various kinds of insurance. So the, the metrics of the, the performance expectations and how to measure them will be different. It's very different to, to sell candy in a shop than it is to build the fuselage for large aircraft. So you can't measure them the same way. They're going to have different uh, business cycles and all that. But you can nevertheless have relationships that acknowledge that you can do any, you know, 
manage the business any way you want, but we do expect results around these metrics, around these. So that's, I think, the key is it's account, it's trust with accountability. And or as Mikhail Gorbachev, I think Ronald Reagan said of Mikhail Gorbachev back in the 80s that they were working on, you know, very um, dangerous balancing of of warheads and ballistic missiles and nuclear arms. And Reagan said, I trust, but verify. Okay, you reduce those things. Good. Let me just take a quick inspection. And it's a little like that in a business organization. It's not carte blanche, full stop. It's an autonomy with discipline. I, I call it intelligent autonomy. I like it. So you also mentioned a wonderful quote in that same book, uh, Margin of Trust, which is, quote, all directors should act as if there is a single absentee owner and do everything reasonably possible to advance that owner's long-term interest. You also mentioned that the CEO not be present during certain parts of board meetings. Why is it so hard for most businesses to adopt this strategy in regards to you know the board actually trying to look out for the shareholder's best interest rather than maybe necessarily just the CEO's best interest? It's a great question of the nature of boards. And I should say, yeah, boards vary greatly across companies. And I think some may be more effective and other, the others less effective on that dimension. And so, but the, the reason it's challenging in any event is that corporations face many different competing claims and, and have multiple different constituents. And that's always been true. But in the past five years, it's been that reality has been amplified and boards are now asked to do any number of virtuous things, promoting certain level of worker diversity or environmental protection or em employee security or customer economics. And they faced, obviously, the pressures from the senior executives around the table about what their priorities might be. So it can, it, it's always been difficult for a director to prioritize owner interests, but it, it has been more difficult in the past three or five years. The answer, I think, has also been, the rationale has always also has been the same. It's still hard to do and it's harder now, but to see how what is best for owners will entail doing right by employees, customers, communities, the environment, suppliers, lenders, and, and everyone else. And so trying to sustain that owner mindset while recognizing the importance of all the other interests is, is a delicate thing. Not every director can grasp that, articulate it, or remind the CEOs who need it of that. That's a big framing, Kyle. The second part of your question about the advice that directors should review the CEO's performance without her or him being in the room is a critical point because you know ultimately every everything I just said that the board needs to be able to conceptualize that owner interests are derived from other constituent interests. The CEO has to understand, live that too. And that's a real balancing act because we cannot allow the CEO to ignore or diminish owner interest by saying, well, I've got to give the employees this, this significant raise. You know, I've, I've got to give them a big raise so my pay doesn't look so bad. Or, you know, I, I can't push that price increase through because we're in a recession or we just pulled out of a pandemic. I mean, the CEO's got to balance that matrix as well. And, and then it has to do other owner-oriented tasks well too, such as a rational capital allocation strategy of the, of the sort we described. So measuring that person's performance is, is a critical board function. It's hard to do as it is, and it's really hard to do if that person's sitting right there. And, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, 20 years ago, that was not a common practice. It was not a common practice to ask the CEO to leave, to have an executive session. But it is now, it has been for, I don't know, probably 
least eight or 12 years, really a common practice and no one objects. No CEO says, I, I can't have the board talking behind my back. And so that was, I think, one of the more successful governance and initiatives or improvements of this generation. We've had a lot of governance changes, some better, others not so good, but I'd say that's probably the most important, most valuable and successful one, or one of the top ones in the past 10 or 20 years. So in quality shareholders, you mentioned that uh, Phil Fisher is one of Buffett's biggest influencers had a great way of comparing companies with restaurants. Quote, just as there are different kinds of restaurants catering to different tastes, there are different kinds of companies catering to different shareholder preferences. You mentioned three major types of shareholders, quality shareholders, which you refer to as cues in your book. So we'll refer to them as that here as well, transients and indexers. So before we jump into some more details, would you outline some of the characteristics of each of these shareholder types to people in the audience who are unfamiliar with these terms? Happy to, Kyle. And thank you so much for reading all of my books so carefully and having such profound questions about them. And thank you in particular on this quality shareholders matrix. And I confess, as you did for me, that I owe this framework to Phil Fisher, who wrote a great book in 1958 called Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. And, and Warren called my attention, called the world's attention to Phil's book in, in outlining exactly this in his 1978 letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, in which Warren said, at Berkshire, we want only quality shareholders. And, and his definition that I pick up in answering your question now is that quality shareholders have a very long time horizon. So ideally, a holding period forever, and also a high degree of concentration. That is, they pick stocks and they choose a particular stock because they understand that business, they care about that business, and they want that business as a business to prosper. The two opposites of that are the two you mentioned. The transient shareholder is it's the short-term uh, speculator. You can call them a lot of different things. I mean, it's the day trader or, or nowadays with AI, the artificial intelligence, the, the nano trader programs, rapid buys and sells. And it's plenty of professional arbitrageurs who simply are buying and selling stocks or options on them in order to take advantage of short-term changes in the business or in the perception of the business or in regulations. And so well, I collectively call that whole group transients because they're not planning for whatever reason to hold the stock indefinitely. We've got typically a pretty short sense of getting in and out. So then the opposite of the quality shareholders on the time horizon. Then the other opposite to the quality shareholder is the indexer. These are funds that became famous in the 1990s and now are the dominant players in equity investing. The fund that doesn't pick stocks at all, but simply buys a little bit of every stock in a huge index, like the Fortune like the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. And they're not picking stocks at all. Uh, they're, they're picking an index and then buying and selling stocks in proportion to their market cap to hug the index or to replicate the index. There, there are some funds that try to do a little risk on that and they kick a few out. But by and large, they're not quality shareholder Warren was trying to get who are focused on the economics and character of a particular business. They're just looking at the overall market too. And so those are the three primary types of shareholders out there in today's markets. And that book is all about those three categories and why the specific features of the quality share or that long-term focus cohort and why that's attractive as an, from an investor's point of view and from a company's point of view. 
So quality shareholders seem to make up a minority of retail and professional investors. What is it about the investing industry you think that prevents more retail and professional investors from taking advantage of being a quality shareholder? Yeah, I think there maybe it's hard to measure. We tried to measure it inferentially and with a, a lot of different data sets and it's certainly no more than 25% of total market cap could be even as low as 15. But the reason it's difficult, and I mean, one way to just think about it is how easy the other two uh, behaviors are. Indexing is so attractive because you don't have to do any work and you don't have to pay much money and you get the market return. It's an ingenious invention. Jack Bogle invented it. The late Jack Bogle, who founded Vanguard, had come up with the idea, yeah, talking to his professors at Princeton, but he, he wrote it up in his graduate dissertation and then turned around and you know, opened up a, a shop and it's been the most successful form of investing ever. So now the, the giant funds, there, there are three huge ones and, and hundreds of smaller ones, all still pretty big and they don't have to do anything. They just they have to run a model. You've got some back office stuff. You got to buy and sell to, to keep, hug the index or get close, but you don't have to think. You don't have to think about, is this business going up or down? Is this manager a superior character or an imposter? You know, you don't have to think, you just buy the index. Boom. And that's, so it's, and it doesn't cost, it costs very little money to do. So, and you get the market return that maybe minus 18 as it was a couple of years ago, or it might be, might be 34 once in a while, but mostly it's around nine and that's great. So it's super easy and tempting. That's why large portions of individuals in America have their retirement savings in an index fund. It's phenomenally intelligent and wonderful. The trader group, the transient group, that's, we talked first or third question today. It's fun to buy and sell stocks, right? It's neat to try to get in there and see if you can time something, see see if you can get ahead of AMC or if you can think, well, what is the next big thing? And then you say, well, gee, I'm pretty sure this is now at the peak. Let's sell it. Or, you know, the more sophisticated, you know, making bets on whether this new merger is going to go through or whether the antitrust authorities are going to block it. It's fun to do that kind of stuff. And less exuberantly, it's, you know, a lot of people are just, they want to try to get things done within a year or two or or three. And they're going to take a big position and then sell it. And they're not here. They're not sticking around for five or 10 or 15. They're not thinking that way. They're not thinking about their retirement or their college, their kids' college education or grandkids. So those are two reasons why quality shareholding is less popular. Indexing and, and trading are one's lucrative for doing nothing. The other is fun for doing a lot. And then just on the, the other side, quality shareholding, to have the patience and the conviction requires a mental investment in order to decide, okay, I'm not going to sell quickly. You know, you have to be able to stick it out. You have to be able to ride through those bear markets and avoid being too optimistic and bulls. So that's just hard mentally to do. And to focus, you have to be able to have at least some confidence that your analysis and your judgment of a relatively small number of of picks is is defensible, is is fair and right, and you're you won't lose sleep and you won't lose your spouse or your house. You know, so it's just it's hard, these activities. It's hard to be disciplined. But I hope you'll ask me what's the good side, what's the upside. Absolutely. Let's talk about that to close it off with what's the upside of being a quality shareholder. Thank you. Because I think it pays off. You know, obviously compared to the indexer, the trap is you underperform. You make bad decisions and just can't get it right and you underperform. The real upside is being able to discern high quality businesses run by high quality people and and making investments in them at, at least a fair price and then holding it for a really long time. And you can perform exceedingly well. And 
there are lots of examples of individual human beings who've done that. Famous examples. We list a whole bunch of uh, in quality shareholders. We've got a whole index, whole appendix of some of the famous people and then funds that, that they've gone on to, on to create. So I think there's a lot of upside for the investor. And the related upside is especially as maybe not for individual stock pickers with a relatively small nest egg, but for larger individuals who come to have significant positions in, in companies, they have a voice, they have an influence, and they can help companies. Uh, most shareholders don't help companies. Those indexers, they don't know, even those giant money managers, the trillion dollar money managers like, like Larry Fink at BlackRock, he can't help Warren Buffett. He can't help Steve Jobs. He can't help Procter & Gamble. He can't help the board at Cummins Engine. He doesn't have a, the first idea about any of their business. doesn't have any clue. What he's good at is thinking about big time policy things like emissions disclosures and diversity. That's not going to help Berkshire. It's deploy that $150 billion. It's not going to help Navita innovate in AI. It's not going to help Cisco close that acquisition in, in cyber. He doesn't know the first thing about any of those things. Quality shareholders of those companies, those funds and individuals who spend their careers studying companies and then zeroing in on, say, some of those investments, they're a brain trust. I mean, Warren has great shareholders and he'll call them and say, or he'll get those calls from them saying, here's an opportunity. Here's $30 billion acquisition for you. Or Steve Jobs will, will get to call you. We have the chip that you need. Or here's a way to get that chip, to fix that chip. Or, or here's their famous quality shareholders who have educated CEOs on capital allocation. Quality shareholders tend to be good at thinking fundamentally about how to use every corporate dollar. And there are examples in that book of shareholders who helped CEOs learn about how to deploy capital. And that has helped the company, help build a better business, help the employees, help the customers, help the holders. And the, the indexers can't do that. And the traders don't even care to try. So there's a real social value in the quality shareholder cohort. They really help corporate America succeed in, in ways the transients and indexers simply don't. Well, Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we say goodbye, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about you and your books? LinkedIn is that's my favorite. Please do visit me there. Uh, DM me, uh, check out. And, and I want to thank you again, Kyle, for having me and for having read all those books and, and asked such excellent questions about them. I can't thank you enough. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.